The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Uh, dear Father, uh, now please may the words of my mouth be acceptable in your sight. And may the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight. O oh Lord, our strength and our Redeemer, who is Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. I'll just jump right in to the topic for this morning. And I, let me, I, I feel like I kind of need to begin with some sort of an apology. Uh, I say that because uh, my topic, uh, sacraments in the church, baptism and Holy Communion, seen through the lens of the English performers, uh, may sound awfully dull and, and dry and, and boring, like we might be planning for some confirmation catechism. I'm not sure. And I, I was looking over this yesterday uh, afternoon, uh, planning for this, and I was saying, good heavens alive, this is, uh, this is heavy as lead. <laughs> and I, I really was concerned about it, and I kept thinking of ways that I could give it some levity and through illustrations and so forth. But when you consider the fact, uh, even so, that uh, these two sacraments that we'll be looking at uh, today and also uh, next Sunday are sacraments that Jesus himself instigated and commanded his followers to observe. When you consider that, then I think it would behoove any and all of us to not refrain from talking about it and discussing it at length and to understand these sacraments uh, these two sacraments is, uh, is, 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 is as much as we can. Now, some things will remain a mystery and incomprehensible. I was baptizing uh, a little baby yesterday, uh, Francis Wong and, and Cash, uh, their little baby standing right over here, Fran Cage, a grandchild. Uh, and I, I was talking uh, about the incomprehensibility of certain aspects of of, of the sacrament of baptism in this particular case uh, it became clear to me as I was baptizing in, in this particular case an 11-year-old girl. I've talked to her before. And we got down to that part of the liturgy where it says you are sealed by the Holy Spirit in baptism and marked as Christ on forever. And the little girl <clears throat> says, well, God, is that like branding, cowboy, uh, branding cattle? <laughs> uh, and I said, no, sweetheart, it's not like branding cattle. And I went on to explain to her that which is incomprehensible in the, in the first place. It's a mystery, and it, it doesn't, it's, it's, you don't explain it. It's just, kind of like the Trinity, you know, the, the, the more you try to explain it, the deeper you get. And I would explain to this little girl what the ceiling actually meant, and she just looked at me with this big puzzled look on her face, and it dawned on me that I didn't know what I was talking about either. <laughs> and uh, true story, true story. And then that night, uh, at 3 o'clock in the morning, I was, thinking about things, and the little girl came to mind and said, boy, you know, she's really on to something there. She could just take that image of the ranch owner and the cattle and change it into the good shepherd and sheep, then she actually has got a pretty sound biblical image there uh, that, in, indeed, it, it is somewhat of a branding in, in which the sheep are branded uh, into Christ's flock. Now, that's about all I can say, in a sense it is. Now, what, how that girl's relationship with God changed before and after the baptism, just like your child, Francis, that, uh, and Cash, how, how that child's relationship with God changed before and after what we did in the baptism, I cannot fully explain, only to say that we must take it seriously 
Jesus commanded it. He knows what to do with it. He knows how to use it. But in mysterious ways, that child is branded, marked as Christ's own forever. The child can grow up to be a lost sheep, a wandering sheep, confused sheep, whatever. But don't ever think that the good shepherd doesn't have his eye on his flock because he always will. In fact, he will leave the flock of 99, quote, supposedly righteous little sheep, and he'll go out and search for the, for the one lost sheep. We believe that the word sacrament was first used in a Christian sense by Tertullian, he, who was a theologian all the way back to the 200 A.D., and the church has used that term ever since. The, the, the concept of baptism is certainly in the Bible, but the word is not used. Uh, the, the rites that are offered under the name uh, are certainly there in the Bible. Uh, baptism in the Lord's Supper, the, the Lord's Supper, the ceremonies, but neither is called a bab, uh, sacrament in the Bible. What is the definition of a sacrament? <clears throat> a sacrament is defined as an outward invisible sign of an inward grace. An outward invisible sign of an inward grace. That was the definition that Cranmer put in his prayer book in the year 1559, and it remains there until this day. If you go to our current prayer book and you look up sacrament, you'll see it defined as an outward invisible sign of an inward of an inward grace. Outward invisible sign being something you can touch, you can you can see it, you, you can uh, you can taste it, you can eat it, you can you can uh, it's it's, it's uh, observable by our senses. There are, and I talked about this yesterday also, so you guys are hanging there with me, but uh, a good example that, that, I've, that I've used before of an outward invisible sign, and you have them in your own life, we all do, of an inward grace. I saw one of the sextons that was used, used his knife to the point that it was about worn out. The blade was just about used up. And I suggested to him that he needs to go down to Walmart and get him a, a box opener. He said, no, sir. So that, that knife belonged to his grandfather. His grandfather gave it to his dad, and his dad gave it to him. And he said, every time I use this knife, it's like I was with my granddad, and, 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 and my dad is right here with me. Well, see, there you go. That knife has sacramental value to him. It's an outward invisible sign of something that it has an inward reality to him, uh, an inward grace, as, as it were. Uh, some friends of mine... <clears throat> Uh, a friend of mine who was uh, killed in Vietnam that was absolutely just, it, there was no body to bring back. I mean, he was just, it was just bombed and, and, and wasted. Uh, but to this day, well, his parents, I think, are no longer living, but for a long, many years afterwards, they would drive, every year on his birthday, they would drive to Washington to the Memorial Wall, Vietnam Wall there, and his name is etched in the marbles. And on that day, as it's kind of a ritual, they would go, uh, the two of them, and they would rub their hand in his name, printed in the marble. So there you go again. It's an outward and visible sign, something you can touch, of an, of an inward, uh, of an inward uh, reality. Now, there are two sacraments instituted by Christ. What are they? Obviously, we know what they are. They are baptism. And in which case, the outward sign is, is water. And the other 
sacrament instituted by Christ is Holy Communion. For those who were just at church, you took Holy Communion. The outward invisible signs are two of them, uh, the bread and the, and the wine. The bread symbolizing what, what Jesus accomplished, uh, his body broken on the cross, and the wine, obviously the blood that was shed on the cross. Now, yes, there are other sacraments of the church <clears throat> that are sometimes called the lesser sacraments. There were five of them, and the Roman Catholic insistence that they are a total of seven, two, two instituted by Christ plus five lesser sacraments, can claim no greater antiquity than the 12th century. Three, were, three of these five, in addition to the baptism and Holy Communion, were intended for all Christians, but the other two were reserved for some and mutually exclusive. The three that were uh, for all are confirmation, penance, and extreme unction, that which we do when we give someone last rites or put all and their forward uh, in and pray for them. <clears throat> the two that were reserved for, for some members only of the church were holy orders, that is, ordination in the, in the Roman Catholic Church. That was for men only, and then also marriage. That was intended for the laity only, so that excluded uh, the clergy. Now, these five so-called lesser sacraments, uh, practices, they carry meaning, but they don't have the same character as Holy Communion and, and, and baptism. And the English reformers and most of the uh, uh, Protestants, the, uh, the various denominations that came to the Protestant church, they do not refer to them as sacraments. Uh, in, in any way, shape, or form. Call them whatever you want to for two reasons. Number one, Jesus did not institute them. Uh, and while they have sacramental value, we don't call them the sacrament of the church because Jesus didn't, didn't, uh, didn't institute them or, in fact, command them to, to be done in observance for anything that he had done. And the other reason is because none of the other five point specifically to the atonement and to what Jesus accomplished on the cross. The, the reformers were so adamant about this, as they, as they, and I'm going to talk more next week about the difference between the Roman Catholic Church and the Protestant understanding of this, but the reformers were so adamant that this is the way that one of our articles of faith is written. If you look at the bottom of your, your printout there from, from, uh, the, uh, from one of the articles of faith, those five commonly called sacraments, that is to say confirmation, penance, and orders, Matrimony and extreme unction are not to be counted for sacraments of the gospel. Being such has grown partly out of the corrupt understanding of the apostles. Now, that's pretty strong language. Now, and, and in fact, I was in uh, Columbia, South Carolina, uh, what, a month ago for my granddaughter's confirmation and their version of Cameron Cole were, 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 was, was the, the youth director was talking to the to the confirmands and says, now tomorrow, this being Saturday night, tomorrow you will be engaged in the sacrament of confirmation. And I just reached over to my grandchild and whispered to, into her ear that that statement it has it grew out of, the, out of the corrupt understanding of the apostles. <laughs> <laughs> and she, uh, yeah, she did. Uh, and she just kind of looked at me and like, with that look that, I've, that my family often throws at me, like light and, Lighten up and keep your mouth shut. And so, <laughs> at any rate, I, I'm, I'm, 
In brief, a sacrament is a sign. The reformers call them figures, signs, marks of badges, prints, copies, forms, seals, signets, patterns, representations, remembrances, and memories. John Jewell, and John Jewell, 16th century, he died in 1571. He was the bishop of Salisbury. Uh, he, he, is, he was one of our principal reformers. We don't hear a lot about him, but he defined and he clarified many points that separate the reformers from the, from the, uh, from the uh, Catholic Church. Uh, and he really strengthened the theology of, uh, of Anglicanism such that it is a lot of, a lot of our credit for becoming a denomination of our own can be attributed to John Jewell. But notice what he said up there, top of your page. First, God declareth his mercy by his work. Then he sealedeth and assuredeth it by his sacraments. In the word we have his promises. In the sacraments we see them. Thus the outward symbols of the sacraments point meaningfully beyond themselves to a deep spiritual uh, reality. William Tyndale put it this way. The second print out there, the second guy on your page. The sacrament doth much more print lively the faith and make it sink down in the hearts than do bare words only. A man is much sure of what he heareth, seeth, feeleth, smelleth, and tasteth than by what he heareth only. And that's the power behind the sacraments. Now, Tyndale, Tyndale you know, was uh, a famous, he's probably most known for being the first one to have the uh, English translate uh, the, the Bible into English. He was arrested, Tyndale was. He was convicted in heresy. Again, I'll talk to you more about this. But a lot of this, the being accused and convicted of heresy, had to do with their understanding of transubstantiation. We'll talk more about that. But he was, the poor guy was executed by strangulation and then taken and his body burned. I, I guess if I had to go one or the other, I'd prefer that over the body burn. But it's just horrible what these people went through. Uh, and uh, his, one of his last died is famous for, he just, he prayed that the, that the king's eyes would be open to see the truth. And apparently, in, within two years, sure enough, the Bible was translated into English. But he said, The sacrament doth much more print lively the faith and make it sink down in the heart than the words only, as by man is much sure of what he, much more sure of what he hears, seeks, feels, and smells, and tastes than what he hears only. Cranmer put it this way. He was talking about the true effect of the sacraments. He said, as the washing outwardly in water, that is like, you know, the shower you took this morning. I'm assuming most of y'all took a bath this shower. As the washing outwardly only in water is not a vain token. It gets the job done. But teaches such a washing as God working, working inwardly in that duly receive the same. So likewise is not the bread a vain token, but showeth and teacheth to the godly receiver that God worketh in him by his almighty power secretly and invisibly. And therefore, as the bread is outwardly eaten indeed in the Lord's Supper, so is the very body of Christ inwardly by faith eaten of all them that come hereto in such sort as they, the word is ought to do. Now, uh, Thomas Cranmer, of course, he's the patron saint of the, of the Anglican Communion. Uh, he was the Archbishop of Canterbury, <coughs> three kings, actually, Henry VIII, Elizabeth, 
I mean, excuse me, Edward VI, and for a little while, Mary, uh, uh, Queen, Bloody Mary, but uh, Mary would prove to be his doom. Uh, in 1553, Cranmer and some of his buddies, including Latimer and, uh, and Ridley, uh, they were found to be, uh, 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 they were brought to trial for treason and found guilty and condemned to death. Uh, Latimer and Ridley were burned first, and Cranmer was made to look at it from his being in prison from the tower, and he looked at his buddies being burned. And so he was so afraid that he actually recanted of his Protestant review, uh, uh, Protestant uh, uh, theology, uh, and uh, but Queen Queen Mary wanted to make a point of him, example of him anyway. So she w- she decided she, he would be executed anyway, despite his recon- uh, recantation. So, uh, but he was told that he would have one last chance right before he died to make a uh, to to recant, and he actually wrote a sermon in which he recanted of his Protestant views. He got up to the to there uh, right before his execution to make his last. Recantation, uh, and he. At the, but at the end of his sermon, he surprised everybody by deviating from the from the script, and he said that the Pope is the Antichrist, and he does not recant. Uh, and he was sorry that he had signed uh, this piece of paper in which he recanted. And he said, "Take, go ahead and make me burn." He said, "I just asked you to burn my hand first. This is all very historical, very well documented." And indeed, when he took him to the stake, he put his hand out first, so that it w- which had signed the papers that he had recanted, uh, and then he was uh, he, he was killed. So Thomas Cranmer, uh, being a patron saint, let's just uh, almost in reverence to the guy, read this. Uh, it's heavy. It's a long statement here. My point being is what these sacraments are: these outward and visible signs that make what Christ accomplished real to us. So it is just not much in theory, it's not, much, not just in words, not just what we hear in the sermon, but that which we can actually sense, uh, uh, touch and see and smell that makes, makes the, the, uh, what, what Jesus accomplished even more increasingly uh, a part, just more lively to our faith. Here's what he said. Our Savior Christ hath not only set forth these things, these things being the cleansing of our souls and forgiveness of sins by death and resurrection. Our Savior Christ has not only set forth these things most plainly in his holy word that we may hear them with our ears, but he hath also ordained one visible sacrament of spiritual regeneration in water and another visible sacrament of spiritual nourishment in the bread and wine to the intent as much as possible for man see Christ with our eyes, smell him with our nose, taste him with our mouths, grasp him with our hands, and perceive him with our senses. For as the word of God preacheth, putteth Christ in our ears, so likewise these elements of water, baptism, bread and wine, Holy Communion, joined to God's word, do after a sacrament, sacramental manner put Christ into our hearts, mouths, hands, and in our senses. And for this cause Christ ordained baptism in water, that surely as we see, feel, and touch water with our bodies and be washed with water, so assuredly ought we to believe when we be baptized that Christ is verily present with us and that by him we be newly born again, spiritually washed from our sins and grafted in the stock of Christ's own body and be appareled and be appareled, clothed, that is, as Paul says, put on Christ. 
imputed righteousness, as you put on clothes and harnessed with him, in such wise that as the devil hath no power against Christ, so hath he none against us, so long as we remain grafted in that stock and clothed in that apparel and harnessed in that armor, so that the washing in water of baptism is, as it were, showing of Christ before our eyes and a sensible touching feeling and grasping of him to the confirmation of the inward faith which we have of him. And in like manner, Christ ordained the sacrament of his body and blood and bread and wine to preach unto us that our bodies be fed, nourished, and preserved with meat and drink so as touching our spiritual life towards God, we be fed, nourished, and preserved by the body and blood of our Savior Christ. And also that he is such a preservation unto us that neither the devils of hell nor eternal death nor sin can be able to prevail against us so long as by true and constant faith we be fed and nourished with that meat and drink. This, our Savior Christ, knowing us to be in this world, as it were, babes and weaklings in the faith, hath ordained sensible signs and tokens whereby to allure and draw us to more strength and more constant faith in him. Thomas Cranmer. And so what a shame when we hear someone say that what the Holy Communion is, uh, is a chance for us to come together as community uh, and that the primary purpose of the sacrament is to feel at one with one another. That sounds good. Did you? The English reformers didn't quite see it that way. They saw it and said, so I, I mean, one time I went to a, a Paris picnic <clears throat> Uh, annual parish picnic for a church I was serving uh, many years ago, uh, and uh, the, one of the lay leaders said, uh, we, we had planned to have communion afterwards. She said, we don't need communion now. We've already had our community picnic. That's this example of what I'm talking about right there. So, uh, Okay. So, Having said everything, can I stop right there to be sure we're clear on, on where we are so far as, as what, what, what the outward and visible sign of the communion, the, the power behind those signs? I thought the wording was inward and spiritual grace. What did I say? Inward grace. Oh, I left spiritual out. As an outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual grace. Uh -huh. Thank you. Make that change be duly noted. Good. That is the proper definition. You're absolutely right. I'm sorry. I should read my script. However, we'll move on then. They are not merely symbols. They are more than symbols. And to what extent they are more than just symbols and, and, and something we can symbols of what we can see and feel and touch, to what extent they are more than symbols, symbols is what we'll be talking about a good bit next Sunday as we talk about the major difference between the Roman Catholic Church and the English Reformers and their, their understanding of what a symbol is and understanding of what actually takes place when we eat and drink and we'll be bathed in the water of baptism. That's a big thing. But having said that, we'll talk more about that next Sunday. But having said that, most Anglicans, traditional Anglicans, that is, go beyond what a reformer named Zwingli taught. Zing, Zwingli taught, uh, you know, Swish, Swiss, and uh, he taught that it was 
strictly a symbol, and that's all there is to it. <clears throat> because he was so intent not to let Roman Catholicism uh, find a footing uh, in Protestant uh, theology. And he said the best way he could describe it is like a wedding band is a symbol of the love between a man and a woman holding matrimony. And I thought about it. That's a powerful symbol, though, is it not? Anybody remember that old song, Almost Persuaded? You do. <laughs> I thought I was the only one. Last night, all alone in a barroom, met a girl with a drink in her hand. She had a ruby red lips, cold black hair, and her eyes that would tempt any man. And she came and sat down at my table. And as she placed her soft hand in mine, I found myself wanting to kiss her. Her temptation was flowing like wine. And I was almost persuaded, you can hear him singing, <laughs> to grip myself of my pride, almost persuaded to push my conscience aside. And then we danced. She whispered, I need you. Take me away from here and be my man. Then I looked into her eyes, and I saw it, a reflection of my wedding band. So, I mean, those old country songs. Could... <laughs> that was for Zwingli. For Zwingli, that was the power. And he said, you say it's just a symbol, but you see these symbols can be very powerful. Just ask that guy who was almost persuaded. It can be extremely powerful. <clears throat> But the, but the Anglos, the most Protestant Anglos, and thanks to Luther and some of these, uh, and Calvin too, they took it, they argued with Zwingli and said, no, uh, that, that it is more than just a symbol. And that's when they got into really heavy uh, conversation and making theological distinctions between making it more than just a symbol uh, and then not getting, uh, taking it too far and falling over that slippery slope into what the, uh, the Roman Catholics were teaching about transubstantiation in which the body and the bread actually become the body and blood of Christ and the water of baptism, something that, that is, has some effectual grace. But the Reformer says, yes, uh, there is an effectual means of grace, but that their efficacy is not automatic, meaning you just don't eat it and then are washing it, and that in and of itself become meaningful, that the efficacy... Uh, of the sacrament is is linked to the word of promise, the word, and then it is believed. In other words, you have to believe it to be, to benefit from the effectual grace. And we'll talk more about what that effectual grace is. But the effectual grace uh, has to be first believed. It is not just by consumption or just by entering into the water. I hope that makes sense. Remember, Jesus said, "Truly, truly, I say to you." Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. Now, that sense is crude and unappetizing for a lot of people. But others who have definite ideas about Holy Communion to plunge right into those words and find great comfort and profound meaning. But however you feel about them, we can say that these very graphic words of Jesus there, unless you eat the flesh, drink the blood, you have no life in you, uh, they are definite and absolute. There's no ambiguity there. You eat it, you live. You don't, you have no life in you. Uh, that, that, that's, that's black and white right there. What do these difficult words mean? Well, fortunately, Jesus, uh, Jesus gave us the meaning of the words. He made it very clear 
uh, in the Gospels when he said in the upper room, take, eat, this is my body. And then he said, drink this, all of you, for this is the blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Whenever you do this, do this in remembrance of me. For the forgiveness of sins, do this in remembrance of me. So we get down to some nitty-gritty stuff here. That word remembrance of me is the, the Greek word there is stronger than just remember. The Greek word is anamnesis, which is the opposite of amnesia. Anamnesis is to remember something so graphically that it actually changes you. There's an effectual means of grace there and the power of the way you of, of, of how you remember it until you are actually there and it makes a difference to you physically. And the only thing I can possibly by analogy compare that uh, to you is as a little boy, I worked on my grandmother's peach farm, Capabella, South Carolina. She was a peach farmer. My grandfather who had died in a train accident many years ago left that big peach, uh, modern average size peach farm. So my grandmother hired a foreman uh, and as a little boy I picked peaches and I was in the packing shed. Uh, and the peach fuzz, remember in the summer, the peach fuzz is lethal. Peach, not lethal, but it's very uncomfortable. And per, as you perspire in the hot summer and it gets in your cheek up under here and you start to, you start to scratch it and a rash will break out. And let me tell you, you it, it is very, I, I'm sure today uh, they have some medicine for it, but back then they, the only thing you could do is take a cold bath. Lord, no, don't take a hot one, but take a cold bath, put powder on it and and do the best you can, but it was awful. Okay, point being, anamnesis, to remember that. I promise you, to this day, I can go into the pig, and I can smell a peach, and I get a breakout. <laughs> that, that is the power of anamnesis. That is the power to, to believe it so vividly until you live into it. And reformers say, so it's more than a symbol. It is a transforming, physically transforming. Uh, and, you know, the old spiritual, were you there when they crucified my Lord? Sometimes it makes me want to tremble. Uh, and so there is, a, there is actually a visible, a physically, uh, a transformation that takes place within the sacraments uh, uh, that, that, uh, that is hard to explain. But it has to be believed uh, t- to get there. But, I mean, as far as what Jesus says, unless you eat it, you're dead. I, I would say that if, if you've not experienced forgiveness in your lives, then you are, in fact, you are burdened to the point of death. Because if you've not felt forgiveness in your life, then you're in a position of guilt. And guilt uh, is the opposite of forgiveness, and guilt is, guilt is, uh, is, is, is death. Uh, you know, the same guy did almost persuaded. I don't know his name, but I do know that he also wrote that song. I tell it like it ought to be because how it is is killing me. And that same guy, he was a wonderful poet. I need to find out more about this guy. But the guy understood human bondage, and he understood temptation, obviously, but, and he also, under, but he also understood guilt. I tell it like it ought to be because how it is is killing me. And guilt is that, is, 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 is what... Uh, uh, is between what ought to be and, and, and what it is. And th- he is obviously singing his guts out from a position of guilt, and he's right to say it's killing killing me. And if you look back on your inventory of your own life and those areas that have not felt God's forgiveness, then uh, you know the power uh, of guilt. A friend came to me not long ago and talked to me where, poor guy, 
over car. He actually took his wallet out and, and, and took a piece of paper out where he had written down the names of people whose lives had crossed his life that he had hurt. And he had actually written those names down. I said to him, good Lord. I said, you've actually written them down. He said, I have. I carry them with me. Uh, and and uh, I, these are the people, he said, that have trusted me and they've loved me and as a result they've been hurt. Uh, and he, and, and it, 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 it was killing him. And, of course, as he started doing that, I started thinking about people that I've hurt. And the next thing you know, we're, we're, we're both uh, <laughs> we're in the same boat. They're leaning on each other's shoulders. But you can count on the fact that we talked about, about forgiveness and we talked about what Jesus had accomplished because only Jesus can make, you know. Again, I know I talk about Mr. Worldly Wise Man to the point you're sick of hearing him, but, you know, all that stuff. You've got to learn forgive yourself. It's just such a good bunch of crap. It's so, it just has absolutely no promise in it. It's a lie. It's a cheat. It's, it's not so. you just got to learn to forgive yourself. You, God has got to forgive you. Uh, and then when that happens, then you can find new life. And as we talk, behold, he said, I make all things new. Easter's got the last answer on all of this. So anyway, oh, oh Felix Culpa, as they say, oh, happy guilt. I mean, happy is the man that feels the guilt and then knows where to, what to do with it. Because when honest-to-goodness forgiveness uh, covers over honest-to-goodness recognized guilt, then we begin to live as perhaps never, never before. And these sacraments that we have, both in baptism and in Holy Communion, these sacraments are something that we can actually absorb. And Jesus said, you know, you got an anamnesis to the point where you inwardly digest it. Unless you eat it, unless you inwardly digest it, then you have no life in you. Uh, and and that's, uh, that, that's my take on what he meant. Now, you could, gosh, I, I only have just a few minutes, and I won't go into this. Now, immediately the question comes up, well, what about children? They don't have any. We baptize them. We don't give them communion. Now, some parents insist that their little toddlers take. You know, I, I, I think it's more meaningful after they go through first communion classes and learn more about it. But that's all right. That's a parental decision. But in, certainly in, bapti- in, in baptism, we do infant baptism. Uh, and, and so the, the, the obvious question is, then, well, if it's got to be believed before you get it, the efficacy of sacraments have any meaning, then why baptize a little baby? Uh, the only thing I can say to that, by the way, there's a great book here. It's available in the bookstore. or was. I think we may have a uh, – it could be out, but you might check on it called Infant Baptism. It's one of the best little pamphlets, not just if you're getting ready to have a child baptized. Francis, did you get one that I sent your house? Yeah. It's, it's, it's good. Because it, it does a wonderful job of explaining exactly the theological, uh, the scriptural basis for doing this. And the Reformers, by the way, had no objection to this. The English Reformers had no objection to infant baptism because they saw a link between the Abrahamic covenant of, of circumcision as having, uh, having uh, a direct meaning. Uh, it, it's almost like a parallel sacrament, the, 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 the sacrament of Communion uh, was the forerunner of the sacrament of, of baptism because uh, the circumcision uh, had to do with cleansing, believe it or not. Uh, we don't know exactly how, but somehow or another, the, the circumcision itself was a sign of cleansing. Uh, and and uh, the, that the, the whole households were, were circumcised at a very young age, and they saw that as, as being relevant to our understanding of infant baptism. 
the the uh, ancient Jews, eight days old, was what what would an eight year old baby know about the covenant between God and Abraham? Yet the yet the circumcision was a covenant, the sign of the covenant. It was a, it was a sacrament in, in, that, in that way. So uh, and we know Jesus Himself was circumcised when he was eight years old. So if you're going to take an issue with infant baptism, then, you know, you're going to talk to Mary and Joseph about what they were doing too because, you know, it's, it, it was acceptable in ancient Judaism. That's all I really want to say on that because it's a complex issue and some of these things I will, I will talk more about uh, next Sunday. Now, circumcision, by the way, this is a little bit of an aside, but circumcision was uh, the role that it played in the narrative of the New Testament. Unbelievable. It was huge. And I, we don't have time to read this, but take it home. Well, you've got a Bible at home. It hits, uh, uh, most of us do. It's the 34th chapter of Genesis. You, we will not hear about this in, in vacation Bible school. You will not hear about this story. Uh, we don't teach it to our kids for obvious reasons. You go home, you can read it. Uh, it's, uh, it, 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 out of context in Genesis, it's like, where did this story come from? But, uh, but it's an intriguing story. It lets you know how important circumcision was to the Jews. Uh, that's one thing. The second thing is don't mess around with the Jews. If, 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 if I go to war, I want the Jews on my side. All I got to say, I don't want to go to war, but I'm telling you, don't mess around with the Jews because uh, they, they're, they're going to find a way to come out of this uh, that's enough of that. <laughs> it's a good story. We have two minutes. They're cunning. The Jews are cunning. They're smart. Let us go forth into the world rejoicing in the power of the Spirit. Thanks be to God.